We are going to start at 11, verse 33. And then we're going to read through verse 12 of chapter 12. Hear these words. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members, members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to your faith. If service, in our serving. If the one who teaches, in its teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word, Lord. You may be seated. So Romans chapters 1 through 11 created for us this uh, beautiful gospel doctrine. What has God done in the work of securing your soul, of saving you from the grips of hell? What has God done? And these, these doctrines of grace create something. The, the, the good news of Jesus Christ does something. It's not just stuff that we shove our heads full of and information. No, the Gospel creates something. It creates a culture of grace. A social environment of acceptance, of hope, freedom, and joy. That's what the Gospel does. It creates something new. The Gospel is in the process of redeeming and recreating Genesis 1-2. through Genesis 3, sin came into the world, broke our world, relationships were broken, our harmony with God was broken, and what does the Gospel do? Its aim is to restore and bring us back to beauty 
and harmony, freedom, joy, acceptance, hope. Jesus Himself touches us through these very truths to create a new kind of people. A new community. Without these doctrines, without these truths, the culture alone is just fragile. Without this culture, the doctrines are pointless. So in other words, the, doctrine, the doctrines and this new, newly created community have got to go hand in hand, holding hands tightly. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The Church Before the Watching World, wrote this. And listen carefully. One cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis of the early church, apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. The orthodoxy of doctrine and the orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church. A community that the world could see. He goes on to write, By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, he says, but exhibition of the love of God in, practi in practice is beautiful and must be there. The church must be known simultaneously for the purity of the doctrine, upholding these truths to be very true. But they're not just true for the sake of true. They are true so that it has an impact on our world. Something happens the Gospel creates. The Gospel doctrine leads to a Gospel culture. Ray Ortland does a great job of laying this whole idea out. And he asks three questions. And the first question that he asks is, what is Bible doctrine? Or sorry, what is Gospel doctrine? What is Gospel doctrine? And he says this, Gospel doctrine is the biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving. That is what gospel doctrine is. The biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving. Us, you, me, the world. He goes on to say, God, through the perfect life, the atoning death, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, rescues all of His people from the wrath of God into the peace of God with a promise of the full restoration of His created order forever. All the praise of the glory of His grace. That's what happens. But then he says, so, what is a, so that's what a gospel doctrine is. What is a gospel culture? He says a gospel culture is this. The shared experience of grace for the undeserving. It's a shared experience. The incorporation the corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships, the vibe, the feel, the tone, the values, the priorities, the aroma, the honesty, the freedom, the gentleness, the humility, the cheerfulness, indeed, the total 
human reality of the church defined and sweetened by the gospel. That's, that's us. That, that is what we are to be like. The corporate incarnation of the biblical message. And then he asks, why does it matter? Why must our churches preach gospel doctrine and embody gospel culture simultaneous by God's grace? Why must we do this? He says, because faithfulness to the gospel requires, it requires more than just doctrinal purity in our churches. It also requires relational beauty in our churches. That's what it requires. The gospel requires relational beauty in our churches. But it is possible sincerely to preach true doctrine while at the same time utterly deny that doctrine by an ugly anti-gospel culture. You You want to see an example of how that is done? How we can preach a pure gospel but then utterly deny it by an anti-gospel culture? Throw it up, Ryan. There's a picture. Do do you see the irony here? Do you see what's going on? we got the Ku Klux Klan hanging out, and in the background, what do you see? Jesus saves! What in the world? Okay, so this is, this is far on the extreme, right? But it, it happens here. We might not live it out in this racial kind of broken, hatred kind of way that is anti-gospel, but we live it out in other kind of broken ways. Our, our truth, our understanding of the gospel often does not have an impact on the way that we now live. It's lacking the relational beauty that the Gospel requires. Thank you for taking that down. So if you've been with us in this series through the book of Romans, you will notice that something is starting to change, right? The the tone is changing and the, the content is starting to change and it started in Romans 11. That's why I said we got we to gotta start there. You know, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul is having one of these theological kind of brain explosions. He's saying, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable. I can't scrutinize his ways. For from him and to him and through him are all things. This is who he is. And now Paul is making a transition. He is saying now that our theology is there. He has laid it out. He says this gospel doctrine has got to be exerting its natural force on you. It's got to be changing you from the inside out. It is creating Something beautiful. And what these verses do is lay before you and me a Christian mindset, a Christian worldview, a posture as it relates to how we are to really live. 
So I'm going to give you three simple phrases this morning. And I hope they'll kind of stay with you. And they reflect what is this fundamental this fundamental idea of the Christian life, what it really looks like. And the first one is this, I am yours. So this morning we're going to just focus on the first two verses really. We'll we'll go on to the rest of it later on in the weeks to come, but just the first two verses. This first statement, I am yours, reflects the very mentality that comes out of verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It reflects an important combination of a believer's spiritual position, place in Christ, and a personal acknowledgement to that reality. So it gives a nod to, yes, I'm in Christ. And it says, yes, that's true of me. My geography, my place is in Christ Jesus. And it is to be a reality to, to, for me. To say I am yours is to recognize and to affirm, affirm something that is really significant and very practical. And without getting, into this, without getting this mindset right, All the other statements found in Romans have absolutely no effect or have no meaning. We've got to start here. This is the fountainhead of all practical Christianity. Paul starts off with a a clear and an authoritative plea from saying, listen, I appeal to you. I'm begging you, brothers. In light of God's mercies, everything that I have told you thus far, I appeal to you to do what? Show up on Sunday morning and do your best, dress right, look nice, talk nice, quit your swearing, quit your drinking, quit your smoking, do all these things and just be a really nice Christian person. No, that's not what he's saying here. I appeal to you. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God because this is your spiritual act of worship. Present your bodies. So against the very backdrop of our sinfulness, we have seen the stunning radiance and beauty of the righteousness that a sovereign God gives to those who are in Christ. We've been to this very summit where we have heard there is now no condemnation. How much? No. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so in light of God's undeserved and sovereign mercy, there is now a way to live. People who have seen this vision of mercy are different. This is why theology and big thoughts about God really matter. And friends, it's even important why you should, uh, this is my plug, why you should listen on Sunday. When you should listen to sermons. Big thoughts about our big God matter. And they have eternal consequences. 
So the starting point of I'm yours is first and foremost something that God has done to us and for us. It was His mercy and His calling and His kindness and His sacrifice that made salvation possible. God has done this for us. And while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. So God has done something for you. And there is no forgiveness. There is no atonement. There is no eternal life apart from God's mercy for you. I'm yours means that you publicly, personally acknowledge that you belong to God because of God. I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. I, that, that, that's what saved me. And there was nothing that I did on my part to save me. It is because of God. No one says I'm yours without God working first in his or her heart. And Paul intends for something more to happen here. He, he intends for the believers to actually live out their in Christ position. You're in Christ. Now think about that. The life of a believer, your very life is found in Christ. Think about that. that. That should just be one of your kind of, oh, kind of moments. I'm in Christ. And therefore, if I am in Christ and I am to represent Christ to a watching world, it says there is a way that now I live. I take on His values. I take on His identity. I take on His suffering. I am dead with Christ and now I am Raised with Christ. I'm alive with Christ. All this is now mine. So folks, if your life, if there is a disconnect between the what you believe and the way you now live, something is wrong. Something is amiss. And you've got to say, why? What is going on in my heart? So Paul is calling you and me and the believers in Romans in Rome to connect the dots between these theological ideas and realities and this theological vision of the righteousness of God that He gives you and He wants you to connect all those dots and say, what does the righteousness look like that actually works? Works out in my life. Believers are called to offer their bodies, their whole selves as, as living sacrifice. So Paul is using this very familiar metaphor that uh, these Jewish folks would have known. They are bringing an animal that is kicking and fighting and they are bringing it to the temple mount where animal after animal after animal after animal would have been sacrificed. It was... It was when I think about the temple, I kind of have this oh, kind of moment. It's a bloodbath. It really was. It was a mess. And the design of the Temple Mount and all the activities of the various festivals all featured sacrifices. Day after day after day after day. And the offering of sacrifices was very central to Israel's relationship with God and their obedience to God. And to belong to God with, as the people of God meant to be offering sacrifices. 
So when Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's pulling from that worship culture, but with a very important change, right? Instead of bringing in an animal, the Christian's new sacrifice is to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And there's three important words to just kind of pick up. Present. It, it's, th- this command is grammatically rooted in what God has already done. And this is, that's why I've chosen that, that statement, I'm yours, in light of what God has done. What God has done for you. The believer has got to have a presenting my life mindset. Here I am, Lord. And John Calvin, kind of the motto of his life was, I offer my heart to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. So his, his first way of acting was promptly. It's not like, well, let me see what that's going to cost me. No, he said, here's my life, Lord. Take it. All of it. And it was with a sincere heart, not begrudging and kicking against the goads and just saying, no, I don't want to do that. Ah, well, I've got to do it anyway. Got to keep God happy. No, he said, here's my life. Quickly, Lord, take it. Because I will wreck this thing. You know what it's like, right? Many of you, no, I'm sorry, all of you have been there. You, you are really dangerous. You have a way of destroying things. Maybe with little kids it's a little bit more obvious. You're just more crafty. And you have a great way of hiding it. And Paul's saying, no, you've got to say, present, Lord, here it is, take my life. But he says, he uses present your bodies, makes it personal. When Paul is trying to capture this idea that not just your physical body, but your entire person, all that you are. The physical body is probably in in view here, but it's more. It's more encompassing than just the, the physical obedience. An offering is complete, and it is total. When an offering was put on the altar, it was completely consumed. All of the animal. And in the same way, He's saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. All of your body. And that means you offer all of you. Your thoughts, your wills, your desires, your things that you are longing for. Present your total self to Him. I'm yours means that you affirm that you belong in totality to God. So your ambitions, it's more than just my personal ambitions. You guys say, Lord, my ambitions are yours, to be yours. Which is going to make sense later on when we get to the, the other sections in verses 1 and 2. But the third phrase is living sacrifices. This is more than just a physically, being physically alive. In the context of Romans, it means to be spiritually alive. The theological realities of Romans 1-11 through has created a new spiritual kind of living. A new kind of life. There's a direct connection between being in Christ and how to live in the world now. So this theology creates the very ethics of how we now move. In 
The fact that you belong to Christ means something very practical. Very practical. Romans 6. You must consider yourself dead to sin. What? How, how do you consider yourself? Dead to sin. And alive in God, in Christ Jesus. You're not to let your sin reign in your mortal body you, you, to make you obey its passions. No. You're not to present your bodies, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but you are to present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's how we are to be doing things. It has very practical ways. So to be Christian and to belong to Christ means something very practical and something very, very significant. And what does God want from His children? He wants us to be holy and acceptable before Him. And what does that look like? That means that we are like spiritual sacrifices. A life lived under the banner of the grace of God. Because that is the purpose of His mercy. To live life under the banner of God, God's grace and mercy. So we're to, this is our spiritual act of worship. Spiritual worship. If you listened, used to have the King James, it was reasonable service. In the NIV, it's true and proper service in the nlt it is the true truly the way to worship him the meaning of this phrase is connected to something that is reasonable or fits or makes sense in light of god's mercy this is now how we do things in other words to say to god i am yours in such a way that it affects you and how you live it makes sense in light of god's mercy this is how I now live. This is my spiritual act of worship. So putting this all together, Romans 12.1 shows us the first step of what it means to apply all the theology that we have heard so far. A follower of Jesus should continually affirm his or her position in Christ by making a connecting position to practice. That's what we're doing. To say I'm yours is more than just a statement about our spiritual position. It is to affirm one's allegiance to a particular way of living in your whole life. That's the first step. The second one is statement is change me. I'm yours change me to be a living sacrifice is not just a static one-time thing you know i've been baptized i made my profession of faith i became a member i'm done right i'm done though no it is to embrace a continual process of transformation constantly transforming which was begun by god and continues to be done by his various means of grace this is how god does it so don't be conformed by the world. It te it's telling that Paul starts this way because he knows in the world that he lived in, this world is coming at you at all kinds of different directions, right? 
The world is constantly discipling you. You hear that? The world is constantly discipling you. What you listen to. What you watch. What circumstances you put yourself in. The world is discipling you. So this is not going to be a sermon of what you can eat, what you can drink, what you can smoke, what you can do. It's not that. But it does something about the way that you think about the world. And we need to be those kind of people that are just saying, okay, what is going on here? The world is very active in its desire to grab a hold of your heart, massage it in kind of a way where you feel all warm and gushy and you find all your identity in what the world says about you or what you should do. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The world is not a neutral place. The world is not neutral. In fact, the world has all kinds of platforms out there where its theology and its ethics of broken human beings are being leveraged for influence. The world, the flesh, the devil are always colluding together to conform us into an anti-God mindset. So friends, we, we cannot be passive. We can't sit back and just thoughtly thoughtlessly ingest every aspect of the world's culture. Because what will happen, it will end up shaping how we think. And it will not only shape how we think, it will shape then how we act. It always has a way of working itself out. In subtle and small ways, the world's theology and the world's ethics become embedded in what we love. What we enjoy what we value, what we believe, right? You look at just even the history of the American church and culture has deeply affected it. And look at where it has gone in many branches of Christianity. Off the deep end, there's even a, uh, a United Methodist bishop who is saying that Jesus was a bigot. And I'm going, what Jesus are you worshiping? But that's the way. If we don't wa watch ourselves, we will be conformed. So being conformed to the world means that you have taken on the very shape of the world instead of the shape of Christ. So what is the solution? There's an important but in verse 2, isn't there? Believers are not to be conformed, but they are to be, what's the word? Transformed. It, to be transformed means to go through a metamorphosis. A total change that, that is taking place in your life. It means that believers are to be incrementally, day by day, changed con and conformed to Christ. Not the world. Be conformed to the image of Christ. And the that the longer you and I live on this world, the more we emulate the glory of who He is. At least that's the way it's supposed to be, right? So we've got to be careful about our thinking. 
Scripture gives us all kinds of warnings. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your mind. We've got to think about our thinking. Rebuking Peter, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, as if that wasn't enough. He says, you're a hindrance, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Christians are exhorted to have the mind of Christ, which involves humility, unity, and sacrifice. Believers are told in Colossians 3 to set your mind, set their minds on the things that are above, not on on things that are on the earth. Set your mind on heavenly things. So the chief characteristic of the sinfulness of humanity is having a debased, broken mind. But we are to be participating in the reversal of this great tragedy that is found in Romans chapter 1 verse 17 and Genesis chapter 3. We are to participate in the change, the great change that's going on. It is to have the mind that is rooted in right theology and right actions. It is to have the whole to allow the Holy Spirit to use the word of God. The very word of God, God's self-revelation and the community of God in order to renew our thinking and to transform us to more of the image of Christ. It's the work of God's Spirit through the Word of God that transforms our minds. And this transformation, friends, is absolutely stunning. And this is why we need to Meditate on Scripture. Pray upon Scripture. Memorize the Bible. That's why you must labor to place the Word in front of your children, in front of your grandchildren, your friends, and your fellow church members. Without the Word and the Spirit, we will be caught in the very current of this world. There's no middle ground here. There's no gray here. We are either being conformed to the world or we're being transformed into the image of Christ. There's no gray. Therefore, we have got to cry out, not only, Lord, I am Yours, but we've got to be able to say, Lord, change me. Change me, please. By Your Spirit and Your Word and through these community people that I love, change me. Which leads us to the last one. Lead me. Lead me. I love the fact that how this text ends. It says, it says that by, the, by a testing, you may discern what is actually the will of God. What is good? What is acceptable? What is perfect? I love that. And it's absolutely confusing to me. Have you ever tried to buy a house? Have you? You have. Who was that? Jude, you bought a house, man? just down the street from the chapels. Uh, But have you ever tried to discern, okay, should I be in this dating relationship with this person or that person? Should I be, how do I use my monies? Should I I invest them here or invest them there? Where should I send my kids to school? How should we use our time? How do I reach out to them? And it says here, man, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So this says, listen, 
there is a real need to discern the mind, the will of God. It is critical. He, uh, he is making this statement because he knows how difficult and complex living in a fallen world is. It's hard. Paul knows that a great amount of wisdom is needed when living as a Christian in a world that is not only falling, but that is constantly changing. So how do you and I know the will of God? How do you know what is good, acceptable, and perfect? How do you test the things that are a part of the culture to see if that is truly what God wants from you? The answer is to pursue a Christian mindset. In order to know the will of God in in the midst of a hostile, pushing, moving culture, you need to have your mind shaped by the very Word of God. You need to know how the Word, what the Word says, so you can live the Word, so that you can discern the will of God. That's where many of us are really missing it, isn't it? You have tried, you may have tried, and you may have failed, because there is really no change of mindset. There is no brokenness, and there is no really giving up my way. It's like, okay, God, we'll try your way. But in reality, there's a real hardness of heart going on. The, the, The problem is that maybe you are still listening to yourself. And the effect is the same cycle of failure over and over. Becoming a Christian means that you belong in totality to God and you are so captivated by His grace that you love His way of thinking, His way of doing over your own way of thinking and doing. God, I love Your ways. I love You. I'm captivated by your grace. So lead me. Lead me on these paths of righteousness. And I will go there. Just I'm done with my ways. I'm throwing down that baggage. I'm throwing down my own roadmap. I'm throwing out my desires, my ambition. And Lord, lead me. Show me through your will, through this community, what it is that you desire. There's many of us who set ourselves up for just huge failure in the future. I've seen it. It breaks my heart. People start neglecting knowing the Word. They start neglecting prayer. They start neglecting being a part of the community of faith. They barely listen to a sermon. I I know who you are nodding. Seriously, I've got a great view. You're not hiding when you're doing one of these. And I know that's not a holy yes. Or an amen. Yes, Pastor. I know it. You're neglecting the word and listening and soaking it in. You stay up till 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, or 3 in the morning thinking that maybe I can get something out of this sermon. When in reality, you just take a, a nap next to your, your friend or your spouse. And then suddenly, when a decision is upon you, you want to know God's will. Come on, God, show up. And God is saying, listen, week after week, I have been speaking. I've been communicating. You've been with your friends and your family called the church. Why aren't you listening? 
The tragedy is that the chance of them, you knowing God's will is so slim because discerning God's will is a very mindset. And mindsets don't build quickly. So if you want to be serious, seriously, we need to look at what is your intake of the word into your heart, into, in the hearts of your children. We've got to be honest, sometimes there's times where more often than we want to admit where we go, where we really wonder, is this really doing anything? I'm showing up every Sunday, I'm under the word, I'm singing praises, I'm giving up my tithes, I'm giving up my offering. Is this really doing anything? You might wonder when you have your kids in worship with you and you're going, man, why? They won't sit still. They're always noisy. Is this doing anything? What you need to know is that in a very real way, the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, is building a mindset in you and building a mindset in your children. They might not get it all right now, but it's building blocks. They won't see the final Lego castle until it's done. They just see those little two-piece Legos building a wall. Just be rest assured that transformation is slowly, that's how it happens. Transformation happens slowly and progressively, making us more and more like Christ. So the question, the final question is, do you have a Christian mindset? These verses show us the connection between theology, ethics, and the life of your mind. They warn us about the real possibility of being pressed into the world, into the world's mold. So in light of that, just a few questions. Have you placed your total trust in Christ such that you can say, I belong in totality to Him? My wills, my desires, my values, my ambitions, my destiny belongs to Him. Do you have a big view of God and a big love for His Word? Is there a hunger for more of this? desire to the Lord. I want to know you, and I know this is how you've revealed yourself to me, and this is, this is good stuff, and I want to know you more. Have you become, friends, have you become complacent or too cozy with worldly thinking? I, that won't affect me. I'm pretty strong. Mm, calling your bluff. Do you see the value of the Word, the value of the church, the value of the Holy Spirit in shaping your thinking? Do you recognize the danger of the culture around you and the kind of pressure that it can apply on your life? And do you see the hope and the power of a Christian mindset that is rooted in Christ? 
Do you see it? Friends, the gospel actually works. It works. It changes who we are. It changes how we think. It changes how you live. And as a pastor, this is what I desperately want for you. This is what I desperately want for my children. I desire this. I want my kids to give their entire life, their entire being to the service of Christ. That's what I want. If God's going to call my grace to Joss, Nigeria, in the middle of Boko Haram, I'm scared to death. But I want it. It, Listen, I want them to not be conformed to this world. When you look at my children, I want you to say, there is something beautifully unique and powerful about who they are. The way they talk, the way they behave, the way they live, their generosity, their hope in the midst of adversity. I want that for my kids. I don't want them to be conformed to the world. No, how I want them to instead be transformed into the very likeness of Christ by the renewing of their minds. I want to send them out into a dark, hostile world knowing that with a Christian mindset, they will be able to know how to honor Christ and discern God's will. That's what I want for my kids. And friends, as your pastor, that's what I want for you. It's not just for the next generation. And it's not too late for you. I want you to give your life as a living sacrifice. A total living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. I want you to do it as your spiritual act of worship on a day-to-day basis. I want you to be able to discern what is the mind and the will of God for my life, for my neighbors, for my children, for my marriage, for my relationships. Lord, teach me. Help me get rid of this other junk that I'm carrying around. Take me, Lord. I am yours. Change me, Lord, because I've got all kinds of baggage. And Lord, lead me into the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Amen? Next time I want more amens. Okay? No, really. If this is resonating with you, there should be some in yourself going, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, bring it, Paul. Give me more. Ooh, that hurts. Don't just sit there. It changes even the way you talk and the way you worship. I'm not looking for hecklers, by the way. but So let us pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, this is the goal of the human life is to offer ourselves on a constant basis as living sacrifices to you so that we can be holy and we can be acceptable to you may lord we do this as an act of worship of saying lord consume me and all of me and lord change me from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory looking more and more on a daily basis more like jesus sometimes god it's going to be two steps forward and one step back but lord we know that you will use all these things even our forward and backward walk 
to mature us and to make us more like Christ. So Lord, would you take these people, would you take my kids, and would you give us a, a Christian mind that loves you? And Lord, I pray that in this week, we can see in our lives how the gospel is working. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we...